The Sports Career Podcast, episode 309. What attitude do you need to pursue a career in sports sponsorship? Sports Achiever and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Sports Crew Podcast. I'm your host Ed Bowers. As always, my goal each week is to provide you a special guest who's an expert in a particular field in the sports industry, especially if you have an interest with regards to pursuing a career in sports sponsorship. I hope today's episode can be useful to you with regards to your sports career development, interests and needs. Now, getting back to today's podcast special guest is Heidi Pellerano. Heidi has a fascinating sports career journey with over 20 years of experience. She's worked at the NBA, Wasserman Media Group, and currently she's the Chief Commercial Officer at CONCACAF, where she specialises with the commercial team with regards to marketing and sponsorship partnerships. For that reason, it's such a pleasure to have Heidi as a podcast special guest on the show. That's when today's episode, Heidi will share her sports career journey and explain to you what attitude you need to pursue a career in sponsorship in the sports industry. Heidi, it's such a joy to have you on the podcast show. Please just share to listeners your sports career journey. When did it all start? Oh, Ed, it's an incredible pleasure to be sitting here with you. I've actually been looking forward to this for a number of days since you reached out and asked me to participate. To everybody that's listening, I hope you find a lot of interesting nuggets from my personal experience and that you use that as motivation for your own, uh, because definitely worth it. This industry is so much fun and uh, very challenging in many respects. Specific to your question, Ed, my career has been not the traditional path uh, in any way, shape or form. Um, most people don't realize this, but my training from uh, uh, schooling is I'm an electrical engineer and with two specializations, communications and robotics. So how does that lead into a sports career? I think it's what we'll uncover over the next hour uh, together. But uh, my journey, I think, was very unique in the sense that I grew up in Puerto Rico. For those who are Latin culture, or maybe I think this happens in a lot of other cultures, you have a lot of influence from your family in terms of a career path. I'm the daughter of a, a doctor that was a college professor and an engineer that worked at the water company. My brother's an engineer that works for NASA today. And so I was always good in science and math, although I always laugh now in retrospect because I thought I was good in other things as well. But there was a lot of guidance to try to pursue something in, in, in that STEM field. So I did. I, you know, but believe it or not, my first passion was to want to be an architect because I knew there was something about more creative to me. So I felt like there, that could be a good path. But I actually took an architecture class when I was in high school. And unfortunately, my, my teacher wasn't the most encouraging person because he started talking about the hardships of being an architect and how he had to supplement his income teaching high school and he didn't seem to love it too much. And it wasn't necessarily the words that I was looking for to find inspiration uh, to pursue this career. So uh, it was kind of back in the drawing board, but again, through a lot of that influence about STEM. 
Um, so I ended up saying, okay, well, you know, maybe I continue my the family tradition and and uh, uh, pursue a career in engineering. Uh, maybe follow my brother. My brother's five years older and somebody I always admired and, and looked up to. That maybe I follow him into NASA. And I always was fascinated by space and and the universe. Um, so that's kind of the path I took. Was fortunate enough to to go to a to a great university. I'll admit it. I struggle at the university. Um, maybe that was my sign <laughs> that that wasn't uh, supposed to be my path. But uh, I'm I'm a very stubborn person. I'm okay admitting that. It uh, it can be a positive quality if you apply it in the right way. Um, so I, I I really worked very hard to do well in school, um, and then I got my first job, and I was uh, actually a military consultant. Uh, at an or uh, at a, a company, a research company that did work for the United States government, uh, specifically the armed forces. Um, so I worked at the Pentagon as a military consultant uh, for the Air Force. Um, that they had a particular plane uh, that was designed for the Cold War, right? I, that I'm, now I dated myself how old I am, and they needed to figure out what to do with it because it was a big investment. The Cold War had ended, and they tried to figure out if they could salvage the plane and modernize it for the new uh, war. So I did that for a number of years. I can tell you I was 21 when I started. Very heavy, very heavy job. But interesting fact, in that one day, one of my colleagues uh, was a dad, and he had an 11-year-old daughter who played basketball at a a youth league. And he came to me one day in the office and said, you're going to do me a favor. I was like, Okay, uh, what is that? Um, I have an 11-year-old daughter who plays basketball, and there's not a single female coach in her entire league. And I need you to change that. So I'm going to give you my team, my daughter's team. I'm going to introduce you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to do a lot of the administrative matters. um, But I need you to do this for me. So, of course, you know, who doesn't? When you hear that, I played sports, and I recall how hard it was to find female coaches and mentors um, of course, I signed up to do it. And then it through that process, I realized how much I love sports, right? Like I always played it. I always watched it. Uh, but being that connected, like I would spend hours designing my lessons and my uh, my plans. And I went to Duke University. So I have my players running the Coach K, you know, motion offense. And everybody's like, they're 11-year-olds. I loved it. And, and it was so much fun. Um, and I started to realize there was something missing in my day job, right? And then, you know, I quickly thought maybe it has to do with the work, right? Working at the Pentagon, uh, military, uh, it's a very difficult and very tough decisions. And I was still very young. So I started looking for other jobs uh, in engineering. Uh, got one coding and I never loved coding in college. I was like, do not follow that path. You never like that class. Do not do it. Do not do it. So I, I, I didn't. Um, and then I got a job at NASA working for the Hubble telescope. And for every engineer out there, they know that's that's a dream come true. But I struggle, to be honest with you. I struggled um, accepting the job. And that's what led me to think about, why are you struggling? That this should be the easiest thing to do in the world. You don't have to move. You get to stay where you are. You're close to your brother who you love, who was uh, already starting a family. So I have my niece. Um, so it, it was perfect in, in every respect. But I really did struggle accepting the role. So that led me to do a lot of soul searching. I tell people that I think I have my midlife crisis at 23. <laughs> um, um, because, you know, it really had me reflect 
And I did. And I, I felt trapped with what we, again, with what led me to become an engineer. Okay, what do people think I should be doing? What am I good at? Believe it or not, and I'm going to say this in case people benefit from this, I actually applied to law school and got in. I, you know, because I was like, I'm really good at arguing and maybe there's an opportunity for me there. I could become a lawyer, you know, maybe a patent lawyer or sport. like I went through all of these scenarios. But same thing, um, I struggle to send that uh, check to hold your space in, in that in the class. And that really then led me to, OK, you're you're rushing through this. You're not really giving it its due time. And I remember I had kept that from everybody. I hadn't told anybody that I was going through this soul searching. I didn't want to worry my family. I didn't want to worry my friends. I was really going through it on my own. And I realized that was probably a mistake. And I remember my mom found out, not because I told her, because she saw my admission letter uh, to Georgetown University. And she's like, hello. <laughs> so she gave me the best advice at the time, which was, why are you doing this on your own? Why don't you seek advice from others? And one of the things she suggested is, why don't I reach out to Georgetown and talk to a counselor? And I said, well, no, like counselors is when you're in school. And she's like, well, technically you were already admitted. So they should offer those services for you. And I remember uh, calling and they gave me an appointment and I showed up and the woman, God bless her, within two minutes told me, law school is not where you come find yourself. Just like that. And I don't, she wasn't mean or anything. She was just very honest which is probably what I needed. And, but I asked her like, what do you mean you don't come? And she's like, unfortunately the way the, the system is designed, you come here and you're working to get an internship, then you get your internship and then you do a good job in the internship so that you can get a full-time job. So that was really good advice. She asked me to, if, if I wanted to consider to defer law school and then do a, a really soul searching. Uh, and I did, I spent a lot of time soul searching and I started talking to other people, which was my mistake the first time. And some of the people I was talking to most were my friends, but most of my friends were engineers. So they kind of quite struggled to capture why. I, they kind of suggested other places to go work. Um, but some of the people I started talking to, believe it or not, were the parents of the little girls that I was coaching. You know, and, you know, we would be at practice and sometimes the girls would be running drills and I could spend a few minutes chatting with them. I, I really they were asking me, like, what do you love most? And I said, you know, one thing that I've always loved without explanation is sports, because I don't come from a big sports family. Like my parents didn't play or anything like that. I couldn't explain it. You know, I even used to joke with my mom sometimes. She did not like the joke. I will say it very publicly where I would say, am I adopted? Like, it's okay if I'm adopted, right? Just to make sense of the things that I love. So they're like, what, what, if you love it, why don't you pursue a career? And that was so foreign to me because I didn't think beyond, oh, a career in sports means you play, you coach, you're a referee, or you own it and then the owner gets to decide who works in sports, right? Like it was such a, a myopic view of the opportunities that sports represented that when they opened that possibility, I really started to research it. They actually helped me get informational interviews, which is something I encourage to anybody uh, to really do is informational interviews are really valuable and great people will take time to do informational interviews and share their experiences and talk about their organization and their role. And I did that. And, um, I met a lot of people working at the NBA, uh, college sports, baseball. And unfortunately, the message was always the same, which was 
why do you want to work in sports? You're an engineer. You're going to be too smart for the job. You are going to be frustrated with the amount of pay. You have a better path, like stay in engineering. And the fourth person that said that to me, I paused and I said, Lord, like, please have the strength to say what you want to say, but do it in a polite, respectful way. And I said, you know, so I did. I, I found the strength and I said, can I ask you a question? Because you're the fourth interview I've done. You're the fourth person that reiterated the message. So I want to understand then why do you work in sports? Right. Do you are you not smart? Are you not motivated? Do you not want to make good money? Like why? And I'll never forget it. He laughed. He said, you know, good for you. You know, he laughed and he said, good for you. Uh, and shame on us that we painted that picture for you. Um, and he said, uh, you're right. If this is something you you love, pursue it. It's it's a great career. But good luck. It's not going to be here. <laughs> um, so sorry for the long story, but I think it's important to get into the details. I went back to the drawing board, right? Like, how do I do this? And again, having times talking to the parents of my of the of the girls that I coach, they said, well, prove them wrong. And I said, well, that's what I want to do. But how do I do that? I said, show your commitment. Uh, why don't you get uh, a, a degree in sports management? And I literally was floored. I, I'm sure my face, my jaw, like I was like, wait, you can study to work in sports? Uh, that was to me the best kept secret in the history of kept secrets. And they're like, yeah, I think there's like sports management, administration degrees, look into that. So I did. And I was like, okay, that's the perf that's the best advice I've gotten. Now I'm going to show to them because I'm going to take time. I'm going to start earning money and I'm going to show uh, that I want to do this. But what was critical for me is that throughout this process, I learned the importance of relationships and I had none. And I looked around for relationships in sports and outside of the few that I was able to get through the parents of my young girls, there was nobody else. My parents my dad is an engineer. My brother's an engineer. My mom is a college professor. So I had none. Um, so I was like, this is it. I can go to school, get an, a, help understand the landscape, uh, understand better the opportunities, but I'm going to build a network through my professors, through the current students, my uh, classmates, and then the alumni. And that really was the journey that led me to actually go in, apply, and get into uh, into the industry. And I will say one more thing. Um, I have to give a lot of credit to, to the university and the professors that were interviewing me. Um, one of the professors who had a profound impact in me because after I interviewed, he actually chased me. And I thought, oh my God, he's going to tell me no that quickly. That's kind of cruel. And he chased me and he said, I love your background, completely different. And I think that's what the industry needs. I think, and he's like, I think you can actually add a lot of value to our university as well. So I'm going to make it easy on you. I'm going to make you my uh, my uh, graduate assistant. And I was like, okay, what does that mean? He's like, well, what it means is that you don't have to pay uh, your tuition. So you, I don't, you don't have to pay your tuition. Now you just have to worry about your cost of living. And I was like. Like, I mean, I really looked around, like, is this candid camera? Like, this has to be a joke, right? Like, after every, all the hurdles, all the negativity, all the closed doors to get here, and this 
embraced. Um, and I, I couldn't believe it. And that made a huge difference because it's like, I want you to pick this university uh, because I think it could be a mutually beneficial relationship. And I want to make it easy for you to make that decision. So um, I'm so grateful to that professor till this day. I, I think about him all the time because of the role he played in me getting a start in, in the industry. Can I have a time out? Yeah, I need a absolutely. time out. Yes. You should, I hope you'll take notes, listeners. Here's mine. Enjoy your tea. Okay, I, I've got mm. some... I need to unpack this onion. Yeah. Okay, and I want you to take a deep breath. What an unbelievable answer, by the way, and I really mean it. But you've just there's just a few things I want to touch on from a transferable skills, but also components that the listener can relate to. Number one, you said working at the Pentagon, this keyword heavy. Could you just explain what you mean? Was it? Do you mean it was heavy due to the responsibility of the work or the pressure at such an early age? Because I feel like whenever we are in these like we're talking NASA and the Pentagon at before 25 and in the world of like youth and education and growth, that's really young. I'm just curious when you use that word heavy, what did you mean? Was it more pressure from a mindset perspective or actually the physical load of the expectations? I will be honest with you. It was both. Uh, it was heavy because of the type of work I was doing. Right. Um, uh, I worked on a bomber and the bomber dropped bombs. And that's what we were discussing is, um, you know, the debate was um, the precision, you know, in which you protect the plane and the, the impact that could have to the precision of the bombs and therefore potential collateral damage. I was discussing that. I was making those decisions and I'm thinking, I mean, obviously I wasn't making the decision myself, but I was thinking, but I'm 21, 22, I'm an idiot. Like, what, what, what do you guys, and, and a lot of the people I work with, most of the people I work with were uh, obviously in the military. Uh, very, um, you know, uh, they were all uh, majors, lieutenant colonels, generals uh, that have been working in the military 20 plus years. So that was also a very interesting comparison of like, you've flown the plane, you've been on missions, you're 20, you know, 17, 18 years older than me, and you're looking at me for advice. So that was then I wanted to make sure that I did my work, right? I wanted, I was always super prepared to make sure that this was the incredible, the best advice that I could give. And I'm proud because they recognized that. I actually got the contractor of the year award. I think I was like the youngest person ever to win that uh, because I knew I never took lightly the work and I never took lightly to how they make me feel part of the team uh, and how they valued my work. So therefore I wanted to make sure my work was worthy of everything that they had uh, given me. Um, and then it was heavy because also it was a lot of money, right? So you wanted to, and this is taxpayer money. So I also wanted to make sure that every decision I was making was in the interest of the protecting the interest, the military's role, but also smart because we were talking about, you know, I'm thinking about my brother, my mom, my dad's taxpayer money, other people, right? That this is the best use for their hard-earned money. So that's why it was heavy. Okay. It leads to my next point because I've got another theme. Due to your family background, particularly your brother in engineering, how has that engineering environment, but also mindset, supported you in that coaching role? Because trust me, uh, I'm giving a bit of my background. When I was at Durham University, I played hockey with engineers and they were very, you know, X's and O's, you know, attention to detail. You just said it there at the Pentagon. So I'm, I'm trying to get all the information out of your brain where the listener can go, Heidi's attention to detail 
And I'm just curious how your engineering mindset, that side supported you coaching basketball. And then we'll talk later on with sponsorship and building a team, but reflecting out of interest, how has that supported you? And particularly at NASA, because I bet attention detail is a huge component of all their projects. So I'm going to give you the mic of how that developed. Was it naturally or was it just due to the environment with your family? I'm curious. Well, I think it's probably both. I mean, I I definitely think there was some, you know, innate, you know, nature versus nurture, right? It's probably a little bit of both. Um, But I will tell you, I know my brain works differently, but probably it worked differently before. And then it was further uh, developed through my education and training. Um, The way it worked is exactly that I was... uh, like as an engineer, I'm not afraid to devour mountains of information. And that's how I did it. Even with coaching, I literally, you would come into my apartment where I lived in Northern Virginia and I have statues of books on coaching, right? And everybody's like, you're coaching 11 year olds, right? And I'm like, no, like I'm teaching them something that could get them to play in high school, maybe could potentially could get them to play in college Uh, at the time. Uh, the WNBA had started. So I was like, maybe some of them get to play professional. So I would literally spend hours studying uh, plays from, you know, John Wooden, Coach K, all the, you know, John Calipari, uh, Dean Smith, uh, all of these great coaches from college, from the NBA, etc. And I would sit there and I literally would have a book of plays that I made myself. And then, um, then I would walk them through the place with the the, the, the young girls and, and then our next practice. And I could tell you, we went from when we started, we were on paper because they, they took advantage of me in the in, in when we were uh, drawing teams. I didn't know any other girls and they all knew the best girls. So I got the, you know, the, some of the, the girls that had needed a lot more development. So we started losing at the beginning, but then we finished fourth in the league and we won most improved team. But it was that because it was that constant commitment to the being students of the sport and then figuring out how to bring that to life and that cohesion. Um, and we were running plays and that was kind of our whole uh, approach to the game. It's like, learn the plays, let's stick together, run the plays. And then if we run the plays, nobody, then we have a chance to win every single match because now it's not about who has a taller kid in the center and, you know, who's stronger physically. You're talking 11 year olds where you see everything, you know, uh, um, we had, we were playing sometimes teams that there was their, their kid already was like five, five. And my tallest girl was like, 411, right? So we had to figure out, uh, and that's where the, my engineering brain kind of came into play. Like I was designing plays, like I literally had an NBA team. Um, and the girls loved it. And, you know, one of my proudest moments was we got into such a rhythm with our practice and our running our place that I remember one time there was a, a car accident uh, on my way to the practice and the road was blocked and I was kind of locked in and I, there was no way for me to get out. And again, dating myself, this was before everybody had cell phones and I could call in. And I was panicked because I had 11 year olds and I'm not there to supervise them. So I finally, they clear the accident. I was able to get to practice like almost an hour and a half late, right? And I was like sweating. All the A couple of the parents stayed because they knew, wait, she's always here early if she's not here something's happening so the parents stayed and then I was like okay girls I'm so sorry uh and the uh the captain comes in it's like 
okay, we did the warm ups, we did this, we already ran drills, we did these, we ran through these plays, boom, 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 boom. All we have left to do is scrimmage. These 11 year olds. And I look at the parents and they're like, they did. And I was like, really? They're like, you have it. Like they, maybe my military, but it was like that. They ran it. And literally I was like, really girls? And they're like, yeah, coach, we know what to do. Then we just went to scrimmage, right? And those are the things that I think that engineering organization, attention to detail, um, you know, uh, problem solving, right? Like I knew I have a problem given the skill set, the size of my team. Well, I have to work around that. My answer is not to change the team. I got to work with the pieces I have. I think that's a lot of where your, my engineering brain comes in. How proud were you in that absolute moment when you're probably dripping with sweat, more worried about letting them down, but actually they made you proud of that given moment. But reflecting on how proud are you? Because they're self-leaders, they're self-athletes, not you coaching anymore. I'm just so curious in that moment. I'm just... That's blown me away. <laughs> I think, I mean, I, I was beyond proud. Like, I mean, I, I was like, control your emotions. Don't let them watch you cry or anything like that. But I think it went further because that's when you really understand the value of sport, right? Like these girls are not just playing to play in a league and see where they finish. It's where you can actually see the influence you can have as a coach on these young girls, right? Um, and the discipline that they learn, the camaraderie that they, they learn, um, the fact that they not only were able to have each other's backs, but they have my back as well as their coach. The trust, right, in what we had built uh, was important. And I felt it from both, right? Like that the parents had the foresight to say, she's always here before all of us, setting up the cones, everything. If she's not here, something is wrong but they don't know how to get a hold on me. So for them to stay and then also to see the parents' gratitude because they were equally proud. They're like, my 11-year-old daughter that I struggled to clean her room just ran practice, right? So that's the influence you had. So it was a, it was a, a really touching moment because you know, I didn't seek out. I, I wasn't like, this is my end goal. Like my end goal to coach these girls, to get them to run. No, it's it just something that was naturally uh, born out of them because of the, the work and the discipline and the trust that we built throughout. And yeah, it was, I, I mean, Ed, this was over 24 years ago. And I'm telling you like it was yesterday. So that tells you how profound of an influence it had on me. I need to dig deep on this. That's the reason, because everybody says that lovely phrase, well, winning's not about the scoreboard or adding the game. For me, what you've shared is winning. It's that implementation of trust, all on the same hymn sheet of the direction you want to go. So um, really quickly, and I don't want to give too much away, but reflecting that example, how has that supported you in your current role, but also leading teams in general? Because to me, that's such a great cookie to go back to when the going gets tough. So it's very interesting because, you know, it was something that came natural to me and I always did it. But in, to be quite honest, it took me a few years later to really fully appreciate that that was my secret weapon. It was something I always did naturally. And it was a, a, um, a former uh, boss of mine um, at, when I started at the agency that one day he sat me down and he said, you know, he always called me H. H. Uh, let's have a heart to heart. I'm like, okay. Uh, I really want to uh, make sure that you understand one thing. And I said, okay, uh, you, I know how hard it is to be in a group that's small. 
and I see it, right? Like you're a smart woman. I'm sure you're a very ambitious woman. So you're always going to, I'm sure your head is thinking, how do I move up? But, you know, I want you to understand that moving up is not about uh, you beating somebody else, right? Like, it's not like, oh, you can only move up if this person doesn't moves up or doesn't move up, right? And, and he said to me, I don't even think you realize what your true strength is. And that's where I, I'm going to tell you so you can invest in that and use that as your differentiator. And I said, okay. Um, he, he said, you are a natural teacher. And he said, and I think it's inherent in you. And maybe it's in your genes. Your mom is a college professor. So it makes sense. You coach uh, basketball um, at difficult ages. It's in you. And I was like, so, right? Like it didn't hit me. And he's like, most people are not teachers they're always worried about themselves, right? And he talked a lot about some of the other colleagues and their strength. He's like, nobody brings what you bring to this organization. So he said, so I'm going to do something that it might be difficult for you, but hopefully you trust me enough that I've earned that the fact that I'm having this conversation will help you. He said, I'm going to make you every, every time we bring young people into the company, they're going to go work for you first. But within a year, I'm going to take them away. So you're not going to necessarily reap the rewards of those individuals coming in. And now all the lessons and now they're clicking in all cylinders. I'm, when they start getting to that point, I'm moving them to another account. Okay. You know, when, when the owner of your organization and your boss or your boss's boss sits you down and says that, you have to pay attention. And it was I didn't have to do anything different. But that's the moment I realized, oh, not everybody's like this. Like, this is a unique skill set. This is something that I love doing. And, and I will tell you, I, and I think most people never believe me when I say, you know, a lot of times people say, what brings you the most joy in life is when I see people that have worked for me succeed. Like, I, I spent more attention about their career projection than my own. Um, it means a lot to me. And so I, I, when I had that moment, I continued to invest in that, right? I, I always said, no matter how tired you are, no matter how, this is what you need to continue to do. This is your contribution to the organization that you work with, potentially to the industry as a whole, uh, to make individuals better. And the one thing I also did in that, I always kept going back to how I felt trying to break into the sports industry, Right all those negativity and all that. So I always also emphasize not only being a good teacher and, a, and bringing, building teams, uh, and I'll give you an example of, of how that applies today, but I also went above and beyond to look at people beyond what was in their CV, but more what they could bring to the table. Because let's be honest, there's a lot of nuances in the sports industry, but I can teach you that. Right. I can teach you the inner workings of the sports industry, the political aspects of certain sports. I can teach you about valuations and sponsorships. I can teach you negotiation skills. There's a lot of other intangibles that you have to have um, that I don't know necessarily are easier to teach. Um, and then how I've carried that through today. So to give you an example, my current role at CONCACAF, which I know we're going to talk about further, um, when I started working, I lead the commercial department. And then when I started meeting everybody, you know, everybody kind of introduced themselves like, 
Um, I work in uh, media distribution. Oh, I work in broadcast production. I work in digital. Oh, I work in partnership marketing. And I was, and that, that struck me. And so I sat down with them, not the first day, but a couple of days later. And I said, um, it struck me that you, how you all introduce yourselves. So I'm going to ask you for one thing. None of you gave the right answer because you actually work for commercial department. It's just that your role is partnership marketing. Your role is digital. Your role is broadcast production. It took a while to get to that element of, no, we are the commercial team. And then within that team, just like uh, you have, you know, power forwards, uh, you know, you have center backs, you have goalies, same thing, right? That's what I try to get to with them. It's one team that I have digital, you know, I have, you know, uh, partnerships marketing and the camaraderie we have built in, in this two, three and a half years, everybody else comments about it. That's when you know you've done it well, when everybody comments on it, everybody kind of jokes about it a little bit like, uh, you know, I love what you guys have. Like I, you know, uh, I'm, I, I want to be part of that, like adopt me, like, you know, for functions and things like that. And that really is what makes it very rewarding because now it's not only important, you know, on paper, but it's important because of the results. Now we have a system where people support each other when we're shorthanded on one particular group because we're a small team, people are ready to step in because they have a relationship with that person and they want to make sure that other team is successful. They send notes every time somebody, you know, closes a deal. The congratulations is like, wow, this is a victory for commercial. Look at it. That's what this entails. It might look sound fluffy and all of that, but it has tangible business impact. So it's an important thing to do because it has tangible business impact. And when you're in this industry, working the hours that we have to work with, you need those things to lift you uh, through those moments and dig deep when you're literally running on fumes to get things done, to know that you have a team that will have your back at any given moment. Hey, I've got to go back a little bit because it's that deep moment. This is my last element. And we haven't even gone past you finishing your degree yet, but this is really important because you said it a few times, you said at the beginning, you ex it's that sort of self-awareness of soul-searching because this isn't talked about enough where sometimes acknowledging our sort of weaknesses, acknowledging our strengths, but actually just finding the direction we want to go. Like the one clear story that hit home to me was when you had that interview with that lawyer and she gave you like the reality check. And really quickly, so you can just have a breather, I had a reality check when I was at a boxing gym where I gave my thesis hoping to work at Sky Sports. And he said, if you expected Johnny Nelson to give you a free job just because you interviewed him, think again. And my tail was like rope to my legs and oh my gosh, he's actually spot on. And it's something like I wish my father said, but this person, uh, uh, Dominic Ingalls said it to me. And I want people to realize this soul searching I've experienced. And, and I'm just curious of, I know it was knowing that there's a thing called a sports management degree, but how did you keep yourself motivated despite there was less direction at the time? Because that's where we drift with no direction. I'm just curious because I want people to realize soul searching is normal. That's my point as yeah. well. I'm really glad you brought that point because it's important to hammer out because I will tell you a little bit of a story which made it more difficult for me. Um, and if my brother's listening, it's not intended, but my brother knew what he wanted to do. My parents told me he's older than me since he was like four years old. 
my brother said, you know, he grew up in that age. He was born in 1968, you know, uh, man on the moon. So he was completely enamored with anything space related and, and, and the universe. So from that early age, he said he wanted to work at NASA. And he works at NASA and he's a phenomenal engineer um, for NASA doing amazing work there. Um, so I always looked at that. I was like, mm, I don't know if I, I had that aha moment. Right. I went through like any other kid. At one point, I wanted to be the first woman uh, on the on, in space. I went through that phase. I, then I wanted to be a spy. I went through that phase, you know, um, I wanted to be an Olympian. I went through that phase, right? Like I went through all the phases, like, and, I mean, everything seemed cool to me. And I honestly didn't have that moment of like, you know, you see people that, oh, I uncovered acting when I was a school play or I uncovered, I never had that. I really didn't. Um, so I think that made it more difficult because I kind of went like, did I do something wrong? Did like, did I get a signal and I completely missed it? Uh, so that made the soul searching part more difficult uh, because then I was relying a lot on others, um, you know, and, uh, and I will tell you this, uh, and I say that sincerely, when you go through this, especially the people that have to go through real soul searching, others' opinions are important they can also become deafening noise and noise that uh, doesn't allow you to see what you need to see. Because unfortunately, regardless of how much we try, we put our own biases in, in, in our advice. So I know when my team is going through their soul searching, I really spent a lot of time saying, separate that this is your team member and that you want them to stay on your team. Like, I got to separate that like I got to separate that and figure out if I was in their shoes, what advice would I want to hear, which is not easy. Uh, but I go that extra mile because I remember that feeling of like, what is it? Um, so I think the biggest thing that I would say with the soul searching that I wish I read a lot of books. There's one a book called What Colors Your Parachute that makes you do exercises. Um, so that one helped me a little bit because it was the one that asked really big questions that forced me to be honest with myself. Um, so that one was a really good, uh, but I think the biggest thing about soul searching, to be honest, is that you have to somehow put your own biases and fears away. Because like, you know, that experience, like the people like say, put it in a box and lock it, go through that kind of mental, uh, you know, expression. Because you realize that when you do soul searching, you're going to come up with things, but your own fears and doubts kind of go, oh, no, oh, no. And then you all of a sudden are going to potentially not allow yourself to be honest. Um, and for me with sports, um, I'll, I'll share this because I think it's important. Um, and again, I, I, I know why it happens. Uh, uh, but when I shared it with my dad in particular, you know, he's the engineer and, um, you know, uh, he struggled with it. I remember he, he, he hung up the phone. He was like, he didn't know what to say. He didn't know how to act. Um, and it took us almost a month before we talked again, because he just, I, I think he was at a loss. And luckily he told me later, it was a friend of his that said, you're crazy. You love your daughter. She's amazing. Like most parents would trade for her. And you're going to, you know, potentially lose that because she wants to try something different. 
And then my dad called and, and, and he was super apologetic. And he said, you know, it was my own fears that got away from me because with engineering, I felt that you would be taken care of, that you would have a great path, that you would have uh, the ability to have good money and, and take care of yourself and, and all of that. And then you went to a, a universe that felt like an unknown for me. And then my fears took the best of me because now I wasn't sure what that meant for you, your, the struggles that you would have, the potential scenarios that you would be, where it could lead you, what kind of money you could make. Um, so that that's something that's very important because it was a little bit of a sacrifice um, that I had to make, to be honest with myself, and uh, and and say, you know what, I'm going to bet on myself. That was it. That was the moment where I said, you know what, and. At the same time, I was like, I'm still an engineer. Nobody's going to take that away from me. So if it doesn't work, I can go back. But it was that moment of saying, uh, and I think there was another element that helped me quite a bit that I want to share. Um, I also went through that moment of, I don't know how much time I have on this planet Earth. Right? So if I'm fortunate enough to be 99 and a half like my grandmother amazing but what if I don't you know I had an aunt that, that passed away in her 40s and I remember that also sticking in my head what if I'm that person and then I only have 20 some more years on earth so I kind of went I want to be happy that's it like I'm going to live life um to the fullest I want to be happy instead of be one of those people that then says I wish I would have done things differently I wish um, you know, all of a sudden their life comes short and 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 they're going, man, if I knew my life was going to be short, I would have done things so much differently. I kind of chose to say, assume your life could be short. Um, just be happy. Thank you, firstly, Heidi, to, to share behind the curtains, because really quick, I, I want this to be so real because it was the unknown when I, I started my career journey, even with podcasting. Nobody knew that really in 2015. But actually recently with I don't want to go in this pigeonhole, but it's important to highlight like things like death and how you want to retire, like really quickly, two of my family members, one had a stroke two weeks after retiring, and one recently just got cancer two weeks after retiring. You think, hold on, they all they wanted to do was retire because they didn't enjoy the work they were doing. So I can totally connect what you're saying there. But what's crazy is we haven't even got to the actual career yet of like, we've already just got to a degree. So <laughs> just to paint the picture now, you've had that fantastic opportunity to be, um, you know, have your degree paid for because you're a, what was it, a uh, what was the role? Sorry, a graduate assistant. Graduate assistant. That's it. Sorry. See, you blow me away today. You're a graduate assistant. Paint the pathway of this educational journey, and and then from a, like this big word experience standpoint, how did that journey transition into Wasserman? Because I'm just curious of what you did there for eleven plus years. So the mic is yours. Perfect. So it, it's. I'm glad you asked that question because it's very interesting. The story's half there, right? So I remember getting this opportunity from my professor, uh, accepting uh, and starting this journey at school. And then I had this moment of like, oh boy, all my classmates were so determined, right? Like I would talk to them and like, I want to be a, a, a college athletics director. Oh goodness, right? I, and I don't know, I want to work in base. They all seem so put together with such a plan. And I was like, oh, Oh, and they could come to me like, what do you want to do? And I was still like that person. I want to work in sports, right? Like, what a great blessing. And it quickly realized I need to figure something out. And this is the advice I would give 
Um, sometimes we make decisions like they're life and death and we don't have a chance to of a, re, a redo. So I make a decision at that time and I heard every one of my classmates. And what I did was, this is my probably my engineering brain at work. I said, where's the white space? And I said, what is nobody talking about amongst my classmates? Because that can be my the space that I own. And at that time, this was 97. It was after the Atlanta Olympics. The big buzz was women's sports in the US. None of my classmates were talking about women's sports. So all of a sudden, I said, oh, Heidi, what do you want to do? I said, women's sports. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. And I would like, I built a whole narrative about why I wanted to work in women's sports. And it was smart because all of a sudden, now my professor said, now we know how to help her. So one of my professors said, Hey, did you know the uh, one of the, the Spalding is the official ball of the WNBA? The person that runs that program is an alum of our university. They're an hour, 40 minutes away from the university. Let me introduce you to her. Maybe you can do a project for her, an internship. Perfect. Right? So I did that. Then every project I did at school, I did around women's sports to kind of reinforce that narrative, reinforce my own knowledge. And then one of my classmates one day says, hey, um, I need to introduce you to my dad. I was like, and who is your dad? I had no idea. His dad was a big executive with the Orlando Magic in, of the NBA. And he said, I want to introduce you to my dad because my dad wants to bring a WNBA team to Orlando. And all you talk about is women's sports. And I'm like, of course, that's my passion. That's all I want to ever wanted to do. Um, and I think maybe you can do your internship because the, the program requires you to complete an internship. He's like, maybe you can do an internship for him. And I'm like, like again, candid camera, is this a joke, right? And um, and he's like, no. Like, And so he introduced me to his dad, uh, Pat Williams, uh, big executive Orlando Magic. He's famously known for being the one that had the, when he was at the Chicago Bulls, threw the ball that allowed them to pick Michael Jordan. Um and uh, a very uh, well-known and uh, uh, gentleman. And I met with him and he said, yeah, come here and do your internship here and help us. You can work both Orlando Magic. You can work the, as we work to get a WNBA team. I couldn't believe it. So I did my internship there. Um, fantastic experience, except two problems. One, uh, there was an NBA lockout. The, they were uh, debating their collective bargaining agreement with the players. So they locked out the players. So there was not an NBA season. So still positive, I got to work on bringing a WNBA team, which we did. And I also got to work minor league hockey, which I would have never. Uh, so I was able to get a game day experience working minor league hockey. Um, and all of that, that came with sponsorship fulfillment. So all of that. The downside was I finished my internship. And when there's a lockout, the teams really go in a freezing and they don't hire. So my brilliant plan of I go to school, do my internship, my internship leads to my job, uh, didn't uh, pan out. But going back to the positive, just as I had that aha moment of I needed to find white space to, to tell a story about me as a student, I also realized I need to start building my network because I'm an engineer <laughs> that comes from, and my friends are engineers. My parent, my mom is a college professor. Like I needed to build that. So one of the things that I did in the Orlando Magic, and I encourage every single person listening to do this, 
is I actually would. And by the way, if you know me, uh, I'm very introverted. People don't believe it, but I have to transform into an extrovert to actually be able to grow in this industry. But I went out of my way to walk the office and, and luckily everybody had a name tag. So I could see your name and your division. And I would be like, oh, so-and-so, community relations. Hi, I'm Heidi. I'm the intern. Uh, would love, what, what does community relations do? And a lot of them would talk to you right there or like, oh, let's go grab a coffee. Okay. Little by little, I went through every single, like I had a checklist. I wanted to make sure before it was done, I went through every single department, basketball operations, uh, marketing, partnership marketing, uh, business operations, community relations, public relations. I went through each department to understand what everybody did. When there were uh, functions that the, the, that the, the, they put together for employee bonding, I went in it and again, did the same thing. Hi, I'm Heidi. Da, 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 da. And why I tell you this story, because it's, it's important from two pieces, the networking, but that's how I got my first job. My actual first job was a woman that I met through this. She called me because there was still an MBA lockout through, uh, I ended my internship in December. The MBA lockout lasted through February, I believe. And uh, I got the call in March that she had left the Orlando Magic to go work at the NBA. And she remembered me and she was hiring for her team. And, and remember how much I love women's sports. And she was working both NBA and WNBA. And she felt more comfortable in the NBA side than the WNBA side. So she felt uh, somebody with my background could be a good um, balance to her. And uh, so she asked me to interview. And I did. And she's like, you're my pick. I know you. I like you. Uh, I think that you, you can bring a lot to a team. Now you just have to, we just have to convince my boss. And so that's how I got my first job. And I literally moved to New York. A week later, with two bags, right? And I started this adventure. First time I've ever been to New York was the interview. Second time was when I moved there. Um, so th that was an important thing. And so because of that, when I started at the NBA and WNBA, I did the same thing. I, I didn't assume. So I started walking. Now it's more floors. But it was like I would walk the 16th floor. Then I walked the 15th floor. And I started understanding, oh, what do the lawyers do here? And I started realizing the difference between a league versus a team. And little by little, that's when now I started to paint the picture of what I thought excited me, but also aligned best with my strengths. And that's how I actually ended up evolving into this sponsorship sponsorship strategy marketing side of the industry. It was through those, it wasn't, through actual work. It was actually through interviewing people and listening to what they did that I started to be able to say, I, I know I would like that. I know I would like that. Heidi, I've got like my ears are ringing in just joy. And this is so <laughs> important about to say, because when people say, and you probably tell with all the people who've interviewed, they say, build the network. They always think of the numbers, how many people, but what I love here, which I think is far more important. You said it right from the beginning it's about building relationships in those conversations. Could you just touch on the emphasis? I know you got your first job, but just emphasize the point that networking isn't just how many LinkedIn followers, it's actually the conversations that you build over a period of time that lead to opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think one of the biggest mistakes 
that people make in, in, in really understanding networking is that they only reach out when they need something. That's not building a relationship, right? Or that's a one-way relationship. Um, you know, building relationships is really finding a way to uh, have a mutual exchange, right? Um, and, I, and, I, and it's so important because this industry, it's very, uh, it's big, but at the same time, it's small, right? And so a lot of times what you would see is, I remember at Wasserman, as an example, is we had actually had a database of all the interns, all the people that we did informational interviews, all the people that we met. And I will tell you probably nine out of 10 times, we hired somebody from that database versus somebody that just cold called, applied to a job we posted. Why? Because every organization has a culture, right? Uh, that they cultivate very distinctly uh, and invest in, 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 in developing that. And therefore they look to hire a certain type of person. So if you ask anybody at Wasserman, they would always tell you, we have more success with people when people recommend people to us because they know our expectations. Therefore, if they're recommend, if somebody knows us and they're recommending that person, then it's almost like that first filter that you're saying, I, I know this person can meet your standards or can fit within your culture, right? So that's where relationships come in because a lot of times jobs don't get posted fast enough where by the time they already have a short list of potential candidates to fill it. Right. So that's where networking comes in in very handy, because, you know, I get called all the time by uh, recruiters and it's not always about it's not about recruiting me. They're kind of saying, hey, we we know you. We trust you. I have a very important role for this organization. Who would you recommend? Right. That's how it works. Right? They come to me not to say, hey, I'm only going to call you when I have a job that's perfect for you. No, they call me when they're looking for people to add to their shortlist. I get all sorts of calls on a monthly basis from all these recruiters asking for recommendations on talent because they get measured themselves by the quality of the individuals that they put in front of, the, of that potential, uh, the person that's going to hire so that's why networking is so important because I can come in and be like, oh, you should call, totally call this person. I met them uh, or, I, you know, a class, it was a classmate of mine and we stayed in touch. You know how many classmates I had uh, when I went to the University of Massachusetts Amherst? 30 some, but I stayed close with five of them, really close. So then those are the five that are usually when I get called, it's very easy to recommend because I know and I can vouch for them because now you have to understand now it's my reputation. If I make a recommendation, it's my reputation. So I need to make sure that I'm recommending somebody or sometimes I get told like, hey, I, I would tell them, hey, this is a young person. I, I talked to them once or twice. I love their questions. I can't tell you more beyond that, but they seem very... Uh, alert they seem very smart they seem very driven so i might be able to plug you in just because of that right so i think that's the really critical part of networking and a lot of people say well, it's hard you know when you're at a senior level and i always say there's a lot of ways to take stay in touch right like a, a, a good example that i love and i've done it myself is if i see an article and it reminds me of somebody boom that's a perfect time to reach out because i can say 
man, I just read this article and I thought of you so-and-so at the NFL or so-and-so you, I hope, you know, I hope you find it valuable. I, I don't just flip the article. I might put a couple of points to help them understand. And then that's a way for me to continue my connection and make sure that it's a, it's a relationship where they can be like, oh, this is awesome. Or I see an opening. I might send it to you. Like you always kind of find ways to stay uh, connected and build that uh, relationship, go to events, you know, uh, and make sure you take the time when you're at the event, not just to speak to the speakers, right? A lot of people just focus on like the beeline to the speakers. No, spend time walking the halls, the coffee hall and all of that and meet with people and ask questions about their backgrounds. You just never know. You literally never know who you're going to meet and where that can lead to. Heidi, I have to share the one story because it's such a great example. And you know what it is? Um, I was lucky enough to meet Heidi at the Athens Women's Football Summit in Greece. And it was the end of the actual summit. We didn't know where we were eating. And I said, look, we're going to this great Greek uh, fish restaurant. And literally, Heidi got a newspaper and I'm like, fish? And I went, don't worry, like, there's other things. We did go there, but like, I assumed there was meat. But anyway, we got there. Heidi was next to me. There was nothing but fish. And salads and great cheese, thankfully. And seriously, like after the summit, I didn't have a chance to really speak to Heidi because I was sort of running around, making sure the event was the best experience with the other Athens team. But I used that story to remind Heidi of coming on the podcast show. I like to be so real, authentic. It was, and like I got a, quite a great response. So I can't wait till we go to a steak restaurant. By the way, <laughs> me, but till this day, I've always said you could always take the Mickey over this fish restaurant because honestly, I couldn't. It could be the worst restaurant for you, but I want to be real to listeners. It's being human. It's not about, Heidi, I, I admire what you said on stage from your experiences, not through the status of your position or, you know, because I think some people just go to the speakers, but actually it's not build the relationships. So I hope you've taken notes. But look, I want to just tailor in the main theme of marketing and sponsorship. You said you got in through getting to New York through that I call the hustle of taking the time to build relationships and networking. But from your experience now, like what are the qualities we've touched on them through your engineering mindset, but what are the qualities would you say you need to work in sponsorship and marketing? And from your experience, how do, are they interlinked? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I still remember that experience at the, at the restaurant, but you know what? I'm, I'm so glad we still got to go. It was such a fun night and got to interact with everybody. So, and for the context of the team, why I said that is I'm super allergic to fish. So that's why uh, it was a, a little bit of a, of a shocking, but luckily, like you said, they had great cheese, bread and, and tomatoes. So I traded the, the time with their relationships uh, for that. So um, it was definitely a, a, a wonderful night. In terms of the characteristics, the, I'll tell you this, the, the biggest thing about sponsorships it's, it's a very hard job, right? If you do it well, <laughs> Let, let's, let's also make sure of that. The, it's a lot of, um, depending on, on, on the organization that you're in, right? It's a lot of sprints and stops, right? Because all of a sudden you're working really hard because you have a lead and you're pursuing that lead. And the t person tells you, oh, you know, get me all the proposals, get me all this information because I'm about to submit budgets and I want to see if this is a solution for us. And you literally go, you jump through hoops, you kill yourself to get everything done on time. And then all of a sudden it slows down 
right? And then they go through their internal process. And then almost sometimes at that point, it's a little bit out of your hands. And it's a little bit, I always equate it back to the agency world where it's like a little bit like RFPs that you put a lot of work in the RFP, but it's still a little bit of an element of luck at the end, uh, whether you win it or not, uh, because there's so many factors that can influence it. The other thing is also, it's about, you have to be very curious. You have to constantly be reading because you have to figure out where that next lead is going to come from, right? Uh, if you are a major brand, major brands like a Coca-Cola and Nike, Adidas, a, um, even a Procter & Gamble, they get thousands of proposals, thousands of proposals. So are you going to be one of a thousand, right? Like, So sometimes you got to figure out, okay, I, I need to go after a Coca-Cola. So I got to do a lot of work to differentiate myself from those thousand. So there's that type of work. But then sometimes you got to go find other partners that maybe are not yet getting thousands of proposals so that you have, and maybe their budgets are a little bit uh, closer to what you're looking to do. So it's a lot of work, right? It, this is not one where I think there are, organizations that they just throw a lot at the wall and see what sticks. I don't have a team that size. Uh, so we spent a lot of time cultivating who we interact with, who do we call, who do we set up meetings, who do we send proposals. So we do a lot of prep work, looking at their business, their objectives, their values, their budgets, their current sponsorships to potentially try to identify a strategy and lay that against us to see where the intersection is, then those are the ones that we will pursue most heavily because we feel that maybe has a better chance of actually uh, sticking. Um, but it's also, I always tell people, uh, I've used this analogy before, um, to work in our world, in, in commercial and anything business development, you have to be like a boxer, right? If you think about a boxer, you come in and you, you know, sometimes you've got to take a lot of punches and sometimes you get knocked out and you see this, you know, the ref on top of you counting down, like, are you going to stay down for the count? And the boxer always wants to get up, right? They don't, they can't accept defeat. And in our world, you have to have that mindset because I can tell you, uh, and I think we're going to talk about this a lot, but two of the biggest categories that I was working with my team in 2019 into 2020 was airline and hotel. And we were pretty far along on those categories. And as you all know, what happened in March, 2020, the pandemic hit. What were the two categories that were dead? Hotel and airline. And I remember the team looking at it and going, all of that work, is it gone? Right. And I was like, no, we just have to stay on top of them, continue to nurture the relationship, find a way to add value to them and show our creativity because the pandemic will end. And at some point we will go back to travel. So we just have to make sure that we stay top of mind and that we can continue to show that when this is all said and done, we can be part of the solution. So we started sending them ideas about hey, when the pandemic is over, this is how you can use the CONCACAF sponsorship to deliver your story of confidence and, 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 and back in travel. So you have to change that mindset. But also at the same time, we, you have to then say, okay, then 
just like as their categories are being depressed during the pandemic, what are the categories that are growing? So obviously you saw a lot of the home delivery, uh, a lot of um, the categories around cleaning products. Then, okay, let's explore that, right? So, you know, that expression, when one door closes, another one opens, that's the mindset that you're constantly working in sponsorships. You can't just say, oh, that, kind of, that door is closed. Let me just throw myself a pity party and, and call it a day. Now you have to go, okay, that door closed. I got to go find another one that will open. And I think those are the key characteristics of, of really working in this industry. Um, but you have to do a lot of work. Otherwise, um, you're just going to be one of a thousand proposals. And now you're just strictly relying on luck. Or maybe you're fortunate enough that you have a, a, a brand that, you know, uh, that everybody wants to get, uh, you know, like an NFL or a FIFA that, you know, uh, people want to be involved. But even at that point, that person has a boss and they have to show how this investment is going to drive their business forward. Just to get on a specific standpoint, and you know where I'm going with this because it was at the fish restaurant and I had one ear open because I was making sure all the guests who were joining us happy and settled and eating fish or cheese or tomatoes, like make sure they're happy. And I just heard one story when, you approached a hotel and you talked about the power of effective preparation and just to give some context. I can still remember you sort of went with the proposal, but you used data with like, if we do this, you've got X amount of rooms. That means X amount of opportunity. And you, that's what I loved about the story was you use numbers, not gut and not like optimism. You need enthusiasm with anything you do, but there's that importance of data with sponsorship. Then the old fashioned way of just whacking a logo on something to show exposure. So can we touch on this case? I know we can't get the, the brand of the hotel, but it's quite a big hotel, everybody. But just from that preparation point of why it's vital um, and also vital of building that team around it as well. Yeah, so absolutely. This was early on um, and this was a, a category that I had identified uh, with the team that was important for us because we're an event business, right? Um, so we wanted to make sure that we found a sponsor similar to airlines. Those are two of the biggest expenses for our confederation. So we wanted to prioritize that. The biggest advantage, Ed, that I will tell you I have outside of years of experience uh, doing my job today is that I don't come from a traditional sales background. Actually, in the agency, I was a buyer. <laughs> and that means I was doing sponsorship deals on behalf of brands, uh, including uh, American Express, uh, Target, um, you know, uh, working, leading the team that worked on everything from PepsiCo to Microsoft, uh, a number of different brands that uh, uh, Wasserman has had as clients over the years. Um, so I come from that background. So that you, I'm the one usually receiving proposals. And what I can tell you is that I think most people that are in the sales function don't do a good enough job. Um, it's almost like the old adage, remember when you were coming out of school and you needed to get a job and you wrote one cover letter and one resume, and then you just change like the, the address and the, the company name and send like a massive amount. That's how it used to be. Like I remember getting proposals that they even forgot to take all the logos away from the other company that they sent it to. And that immediately goes poor attention to detail, right? So you start judging them based on those things. So that's one thing that I remember bringing to the team, sitting them down um, as we built the team and said, you know, I come from the other side, so I want you to learn, uh, we're gonna do things differently. Um, I'm gonna put myself in my brand uh, you know, space and we're gonna do it that way. And when you're in a brand, 
you know, there's a couple of things that come into play when it comes to sponsorship. The first is that you need to have a person that becomes an internal cheerleader for what you're selling, right? That is that person. So that person, you need to make sure you win their heart, right? Like that's the person that goes, oh my goodness, what amazing opportunity to be able to align with Gold Cup. I love it, the energy, the excitement. But eventually that person has a budget to work with, has objectives that by which they get measured. And then usually they have a boss or several bosses that are going to have to review and stamp their approval. So that's where the analysis part. So when you're working in sponsorships, you need to make sure that every time you come forward, you win not just their, their heart, but also their mind, right? I used to have a former client at Wasserman that call it the uh, magic and, you know, which was the heart, right? And, the, the, you know, and so that's the things that you have to bring together. So when we went into this pitch for the hotel company, I said, okay, the first thing is their business. Their business is hotel rooms. So I'm going to come in and show them all the hotel, how our sponsorship pays for itself, right? Because we, as a confederation, book X amount of hotel rooms on an annual basis across all of our competitions and events. So literally I am paying for my own sponsorship because all of this business is gonna to go to you. So we did all of the analysis um, from a number of perspectives. We did the analysis on where the company was in their evolution, what were their priorities. One of the biggest things they identified was that they were in expansion mode and they were set to open X amount of new hotels. So we actually mapped out all those hotels against our competitions. So we could show them, hey, you're opening a hotel in this part of Mexico and I have my U20 there and I have this there. So you could actually use my competition as a baseline for the launch of that hotel, right? We also then said, you know, how uh, we showed that how we could pay for ourselves. So we actually mapped out every room night how many room nights we, how much laundry we do, how much food and beverage we do. So they could see all the investment that we would make as a business back to them, right? And then we also realized that they were very big into uh, a couple of uh, community initiatives. One was the empowerment of women, their female employees. And the second was taking care of the environment, sustainability. So we literally built a presentation to say, from a business perspective, we align because where you're opening hotels, we have uh, competitions. We align because we can give you business back almost to the same level of what you would have to spend with the sponsorship. And then from a brand side, we align because your brand values are this and the biggest initiatives you have are women empowerment and uh, sustainability. And here's what we're doing as a confederation. So we built the whole presentation like that. And I remember... It was so massive that I I hate to admit this in case they listen to the podcast, but our meeting was at nine and we finished at three. In the morning. We finished the presentation at three in the morning. And I remember with enough time for me to ho head home because I was in the office working with my colleague, head home, shower, and then drive straight to, to the to meeting. And I remember it was like a rainy day and I was like, oh, traffic and all of that. And I was like, oh my God. And I remember getting there, my other team, some of my team members hadn't finished seeing the presentation. So I was like, because I was still tweaking with another team member, the other two team members that were accompanying me hadn't even seen the finished product. Um, so we did a quick regroup 
And I said, let me do most of the talking because there's some changes, but I want you to interject here, here, and here where you're already more comfortable. And that way it doesn't sound monotone like me talking. Um, and I remember at the end, they looked at us and they were all smiling and I was okay, that's a good sign. I feel good. And the main guy, the VP goes, I actually have to say, this is the best presentation I've ever sat through. And the, I remember my team looking at me because they were barely, fairly new at CONCACAF. And this was our first big presentation together as a team. They looked at me, it was like, almost like, way to go boss. Like you nailed it, right? And I'm like, no, it's not like I nailed it. I know I've been on their side. And that's what's important, right? In anything that you do, you cannot forget your experiences. You have to remember that experience and use that um, for the future, right? I can't be like, oh, I used to love being pitched this way, but now I'm the pitcher. So I forget about how I, you know, you have to bring that to life. And that meant a lot to me. And, you know, it allowed the conversation to really evolve. Uh, we did, we didn't get to do the big, uh, you know, partnership that we wanted because of the pandemic, but we did smaller uh, a partnership with them around some of the, um, uh, the hotel launches and also through the business exchange. So it was very gratifying that even though we had some roadblocks, we were still able to salvage something because they were so impressed. And it's one that we stay in touch with as well on a regular basis. Just a last point, because I hope people are taking notes and like learning the reality behind the scenes, but from a team perspective, because I'm going full circle with those 11 year olds, um, you know, you said they were like a young team when you're coaching basketball. This is a young team at CONCACAF. Were there components of that experience that supported you with this experience when delivering that presentation? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, there's obviously a lot of different leadership styles, but I think one of the most uh, important leadership styles is the one that's driven through empathy, right? Um, not the one that creates that disassociation, like I'm here, you're here. Um, and Hierarchy. Exactly. And maybe we find a way to communicate, right? I think a lot of that responsibility falls on you as a leader to be able to say, as a leader, you know, I, I want to be sure that I can deconstruct things from and not be that person that, you know, like a parent that comes in, like, learn from my mistakes. No, no, make your own mistakes. That's okay. Um, but let, let me tell you some, I'll give you some guidelines so that maybe the mistakes that you're going to make are less painful, right? Um, and, and things like that. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I have learned and continued to evolve as a leader. Uh, I, I still continue to invest in that part of me. Uh, as I mentioned earlier in our discussion, is probably the, the thing that I value most the, the the perception and I can tell you uh you know without getting into to specifics but I've had some instances in my career where I've had some pretty lows that I'm like you know what maybe it's time to move on and, and do something else but it's the team that has picked me up right where they kind of helped me to say you're focusing on the wrong things uh from the wrong people did your team has your back and they actually believed in everything that you do and 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 they respect the fight that you put forward and, and maybe you didn't win the whole fight but you won some of the fight because you taught us something in the process right and I think that's the biggest thing that you kind of learn like I want my team to be fearless and uh, be calculated though right like not like hey oh there's a cliff like what happens if I fall off this cliff right like you know be smart about it but I want them to be fearless I always tell my team when have you ever heard me say no right I've never said no 
I've never ever said no. I might say, hey, let's work through that a little bit uh, further, right? Or let's talk about timing or let's talk about, you know, how we can potentially make sure that this idea has a longevity or can be sold in because we're dealing with certain aspects in the current climate today, right? But I've never ever said no, right? And I think that's the biggest thing as a leader to give your, your team that freedom. And that's exactly what I think as with the young girls where they had that freedom. Like I'm, I taught you, I've done my job. Now I can't get on the, on the court and do it myself, right? Now I'm empowering you to take your lessons and make them your own, but adapt, right? Like it's okay, sometimes the play does not work and you have to call an audible and say, the play didn't work, let's switch it, right? That's the biggest thing that I like. And, and also the two-way feedback, right? It has to be a relationship that goes both ways. My team, way younger than me, uh, by quite a bit. Um, they remind me of that, you know, when they look at my social media profile and they all wanted me to do more on social media. And I'm like, with about time. Um, but I learned so much from them as well. And I want them to know that I encourage them to be like, oh, no, like the boss can't be bothered. Right. Um, and that's something that I, I think it's through all of these experiences I've continued to, again, invest myself as a leader, as a teacher, but also I've invested in my own knowledge of the industry so that I can then continue to be the best teacher and leader for the organization. Heidi, I'm going to put you on the spot. Mm -hmm. Out of interest, how would you define being a great leader? So, or how would you define leadership? Because the one I, one of my favorites from John Amici, he said, leadership is a fulfilled promise. And when he said that to me, it changed my whole perspective of like taking action more, listening. You said empathy in this conversation. But I'm just curious, what's your definition of being a leader? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. I mean, I think I don't know if I can summarize it that succinctly, but I think to me, I'll actually give you an example of what good leadership is. So my mother, um, you know, worked her way, college professor, ended up being dean of the, the School of Public Health here in Puerto Rico, and eventually became secretary of health of Puerto Rico. My mom is not political. I'm not political at all. And this was a political role. But she believed in what she could do in the role, so kind of took a risk. Um, and into the career, the politics were very heavy. And, and she's like, I've been in this, working at this for 30 some years. I'm not, I'm not gonna let the politics um, change me or, or change my legacy. So she decided to leave, okay? Uh, with about six months left, right? Because obviously the politics kind of picked up when it was re-election and she's like, I cannot play these games. I'm a public health official. My job is the health of the public. But you know what happened? Three people that work for her wanted to quit. These are much younger people. My mom was towards the end of her career. She actually ended up retiring, although she kept doing consulting work. She could afford to do that. These are younger people with families and they're like, if you're gone, we're gone. And I remember the impact that had on my mom, the stress it had on my mom, because she's like, oh, I can't have that on my conscience. They have families, they have to provide for them. So they were very determined to leave. Right. And my mom was trying to convince them not to leave. And they're like, no, no, we're here with you. So my mom immediately turned her job into finding them all jobs. Right. 
that had a very profound effect on me. And I'm not saying I want anybody on my team to leave because I leave, but to inspire that kind of trust, right? That, you know, that we believe so much in you that, and, and what you're doing and what you're building that we will, we don't want to do it without you was something that really stuck with me. And it was something that I wanted to engender that kind of level of trust and, and, and support. And again, I'm not saying I, I don't want to encourage anybody in my team to ever leave because I leave, but to know that people feel that strongly about what you're doing and what you represent was something that I uh, always uh, admired and wanted to, to, to build against. So when I say that in terms of, uh, I think when I look back about what it means to be a good leader, I think what means to be a good leader is being able to find a clear horizon and a clear uh, you know, mandate for the team to follow, right? So because obviously that's where, you know, they can't be all over the place and say, oh, one day I'm looking this way. Now, as a leader, you have to really have the, the, the vision, like they say, to actually define a clear horizon for the team. But you also have to develop the the structure that allows everybody to row in the same direction towards that horizon and i think the best way to do that is sometimes you have to become a rower yourself um and 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 be able to say we're all in this together and i think the best leaders put their needs last right they put the needs of the organization the needs of their employees first and second because obviously you have a, your commitment is to the organization that hired you. Um, but then a good leader to me puts themselves last. And I think that's what I've always done. I don't think everybody believes it when I say it. But I think um, like the expression says, the proof is in the pudding. Absolutely. And again, I hope people are enjoying this conversation. Out of interest, Heidi, reflecting, what have you enjoyed the most from your sports career journey looking back right now? You know, first of all, um, I think that I've enjoyed so many things in terms of the work that I've gotten to do has been exciting. Um, I think throughout my career, especially because of the opportunities Wasserman afforded me, um, I almost worked in every sport. I've worked on cricket. Uh, uh, you know, I've worked on basketball. I've worked on American football. I've worked now on, on, on football, soccer. I worked in baseball. I worked in NASCAR. I worked in hockey. Um, I actually even worked outside of sports in music and entertainment. Um, I, I, so that has been exciting because I offered me the opportunity to touch so many different aspects of the industry. Also, I worked the industry from different perspectives, from being on the property side, a league like the NBA, from a team like the Orlando Magic, now to a confederation like CONCACAF. I've also had the opportunity to work at it on the agency side. Uh, I've worked a little bit through some of my internships on the brand side uh, with Champion Athletic and seeing that process. So that has been the most fulfilling because one of the things that I remember I told my boss uh, at the time when I started the agency, I said, I, my brain, I get bored very easily. And he said to me, if you get bored here, the problem is you. And he was so right. And I think that's what I've enjoyed with the in the industry because no day has been like the other day, right? Yeah, maybe a couple of days when you're in the middle of a negotiation that you feel like, oh my God, I'm stuck in this negotiation and it feels like Hawk Day every day trying to get out of the negotiation. But when you look at it in aggregate, this experience has allowed me to meet amazing people, 
um, travel a good portion of the world, but I've also had to contribute to some incredible challenges and I've been able to find solutions where people never thought there were solutions. And that's my engineering brain. I was like, people just saw a problem and I was able to find a solution and that's extremely satisfying. So when I look back at my career, I tell you honestly, and I've said this to a couple of my colleagues, like, I, how did I end up being chief commercial officer of CONCACAF, right? Like I pinch myself sometimes when I think about when I started and, and those conversations and trying to break into the sports industry. I never in a million years when I started that process would I have ventured to say that I would be here as chief commercial officer sharing my experiences through this wonderful podcast with others, having come back from a World Cup in Qatar um, and, and doing great things and, and helping where I come from, uh, the CONCACAF region, you know, gain uh, a lot of, uh, you know, respect and credibility within the industry, you know, uh, following the FIFA scandals. Like, that's amazing. Like, that's what this um, career path has given me. And who knows what's next? Absolutely. And it's certainly one thing. It's not boring. Like, honestly, there's so many components and I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. But I always like to finish with an inspirational question, Heidi. And you've shared so much. We've, you've, you've gone in detail of the career. You've given case studies. So as a recap for the listener to like take action, because I don't want to overwhelm them uh, with this next question. Like what three tips will you give to the listener who wants to pursue a career in the sports industry? What would those three tips be? And feel free to recap of what you said throughout this whole conversation. Yeah, I mean, I'll be very honest. This is advice I give my team and anybody that I have an opportunity to interact with. And I mean this sincerely. Um, the first thing is what I mentioned. Don't put too much weight into your decisions, right? This life or death moment. Like if I take this job and I don't like it, it's the end of the world. Like it's going to like there's no a next step after that, right? You know, when they say this is a journey, it truly is a journey. And the journey can be this way. It can zigzag. You can sometimes have to take steps back to be able to take steps forward. So within that, what I always tell people is don't be, don't close yourself to new opportunities and possibilities, right? Like if you, you know, coming into the United States, I remember sometimes meeting uh, colleagues at Wasserman that they didn't want to go to a particular office because it was a smaller town. Why not? Like nobody's saying that you're going to move to the smaller office and be there for 20 years. Like go to that office, you know, and be there a couple of years, three years max. Who knows what opportunities that's going to offer? You know, if you live in the UK and or you live in the US and gives an opportunity to go to the UK or go to Spain, why not go to Mexico, go to Brazil, like go to Asia, like, you know, go to even the Qatar or Dubai, like the opportunities that could afford is, is immense. So that's the thing. Don't put too much weight on the decisions that you're making. Like if you get it wrong, it's the end of everything. And, and therefore then be open to possibilities. The second thing I will tell you, and I mean this sincerely, and I know people are going to laugh, but it's important is don't ever make decisions based solely on money and title. First of all, titles, Every like a director in one company means one thing and a director in another company means another thing. And a lot of times people say, oh, I went there because they're giving me a director title. But when I look at the org chart, like the director here is like a senior manager here, like it makes no sense, right? So don't, don't chase the title. Don't chase the money. I'm not saying money is not important. It should be a factor. 
But if all things are equal, or you love something a little bit more than the other, but this one has more money, pick this one. The money will come, right? You have to truly believe that. Um, and, and I think that's extremely important. Um, I know a lot of people may feel pressure to make decisions based on money, especially after they get married and start having a family. And I get it. I absolutely get them having a mortgage, having to pay a car and insurance. I get all of that. And especially these days, right? Like you go to the store and you're like, whoa, like what did I buy for it to be this much? So I get that. But Make sure that's not the sole factor. Uh, take a look, hard look at the organization. Take a hard look at the culture. Take a hard look at the work that you're going to be doing, the people you're going to be working with, and what opportunities this is going to open for you. And then the last part, I would say the third advice is invest in yourself. I think a lot of young people think it's the company's responsibility to help you grow, right? And put a development plan and, and things like that. Yes, but the company has to take care of the masses, right? The company takes care of the masses, then maybe your boss takes care of your their department. That's still a lot of people. You have to, the best way for you to grow is if you can add the three pieces of like, I get what the company gives me plus what my leadership gives me, but then I fill the gaps and I invest in myself in other areas. And with that, I, I say, you know, a lot of times people go, I won't go to a conference unless my company pays for it. Maybe make the transaction of like, hey, can you pay for my travel? Because I'll do 10 other meetings while I'm there and I'll pay for my the conference fee. Right. Um, you know, listen to podcasts, um, you know, read books. There's so much accessible. There's so many uh, industries, newsletters that you have to. Um, in at Wasserman, we always talked about curiosity. And the importance of curiosity to, to your growth. And that's where I think investing in yourself comes in so critical um, is, you know, don't just rely on, on your leadership and your company to develop you. You have to spend the time yourself. Absolutely. And it's probably why I've been doing podcasts for seven years. It's that pure curiosity. And I think that's a huge component because that triggers the learning. It triggers the making the decisions where you have to find that balancing act in the situation you're currently in right this moment. So that's related to you. Yes, you, the listener, like I hope you're applying what Heidi's just said right at the end. Out of interest, Heidi, how can people interact with you online? Like where are the best places to go from a social media standpoint? Yeah, absolutely. So one of my uh, goals going into 23 is to improve my social media game. Otherwise, my team will be, um, they all want to take over my account. Um, so, uh, but I think right now to be quite, but let's be realistic and be honest and accept the best way to get a hold of me right now is LinkedIn. Um, I'm the only Heidi Pellerano that you're going to find. That's the benefit of having a unique uh, last name like mine. Um, but yeah, that's the best way. I always check uh, I always respond, sometimes a little slow because we travel quite a bit uh, for work, uh, but that's the best way. And then maybe you can all judge me as I go into 23 if I fulfill my promise of uh, increasing my Instagram and Twitter game. Amazing. To all the listeners listening in, that LinkedIn link and Instagram link will be on my website with us this awesome podcast chat. Heidi, it's been such a joy chatting with you today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ed. It was a pleasure. And I hope everybody listening uh, gets something out of it and and really does uh, work at this industry because it's a fantastic industry. But that's the key. It's an industry. It's a business. And therefore, you need to make sure you treat it as such. Honestly, where do I start with regards to reviewing this awesome podcast chat with Heidi? I did say to her straight after the podcast that 
I couldn't be more grateful for her being on the show because these are the words I shared. This podcast is a sports career masterclass of the reality of pursuing a career in the sports industry. And I really want to emphasize this point because I wish I had this eight years ago when starting my career journey of just nothing's really linear. It's really discovering the path and sticking to your beliefs. And the one thing I will share, and I'm mindful that you have been here for a long time. Yes, I mean you, the listener. You know, we're talking nearly over 90 minutes and I don't take your time for granted. So I want to make sure it benefits you. As one little tip is, I would highly recommend you re-listen to this podcast, which I will too. And the reason why I say that is because this podcast, there's so many different components that right now you've learned something from Heidi, but maybe a few weeks or a few months, you re-listen to it and learn something new that is more current. So I'll give an example. One of the biggest learning lessons I've taken from Heidi as a great reminder is that she didn't give up on what she really wanted to do, despite she worked at the Pentagon, despite she had the opportunity to work at NASA, despite she wanted to really not follow what her family were doing from, you know, that environment of engineers. You know, she really applied all the skills, applied those skill sets, and then put it into what she wanted to do. But her breakthrough moment was when she discovered that there was a sports management degree, which really got her foot in the door. And the rest is shared in this podcast of that journey. But that core belief and but self-belief within yourself was a really great reminder for me in my journey. But from a current standpoint, getting to my point, which I learned from Heidi, was how she builds a team and how she is so mindful of leadership as a tool to bring a team together but also like her boss said to her, you're a fantastic teacher. And she had that component of teaching people really well, but then the boss would take that person a year later. And, you know, it's that self-awareness as well. As I said, there's so many learning points I've taken from this podcast, but that is why I'm recommending it to you to re-listen to it. And most of all, relating to today's podcast topic, I hope you've got a better understanding of the reality of working in sports sponsorship from an agency standpoint or from the brand standpoint. And the key thing is, is really making your PowerPoint or your deck relevant and personalized to the deck, um, if that makes sense, and doing your research and homework. Um, Not just like she said, what a lot of people do is have the same template, just change the logo or the names. And then you end up making mistakes because when you do send it out, it's with the wrong logo, with the wrong uh, name. And as she said, it's poor attention to detail. So there are just so many learning aspects. You can apply this to your sports career development wherever you are right now. But it's got to be relevant. So there's my number one tip, uh, which I'm going to apply myself without a doubt. So I hope you've enjoyed this podcast as much as I have. But again, what's that one thing? you learned from this podcast which you're going to apply to your sports career development now that's the most important question I always finish like this with most podcasts because if you don't apply it you're not going to develop yourself and that's why I'm so keen that whatever you've learned right after this podcast I want you to implement it to your sports career development and make it happen as always at the end of each podcast episode I'd like to finish with an inspirational quote from my guest speaker Heidi said 
When you're soul searching, focus on what you want, but put away that biases and fears away. Instead, just bet on yourself, be curious, and focus on really what you want to do.